This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning, and welcome to your radio doctor. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. As we conclude our series on diabetes, we welcome two very special guests today. First, Mr. Phil Robinson, president of the Lankanel Medical Center, who will tell us about the farm-to-table approach that connects patients with fresh produce. Later, we'll be joined by Dr. Ty Dunn, a nationally recognized professor of surgery from Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, to discuss pancreas and kidney transplants in the treatment of diabetes. Lankanol Medical Center, a comprehensive medical complex with superb clinical care and research, President Phil Robinson, a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives since 1991, has won numerous leadership awards. Since arriving in 2010, Lankanol has undergone impressive growth, ranked now in the top 1% of hospitals in America for superior performance, and U.S. News & World Report listing of number 5 in Philly and number 10 in the entire state of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Phil. So happy you can join us. Thank you, Marianne. I'm glad to be here. Now, Lankanol has a long history as a teaching hospital for medical students and residents, I was both, and is also noted for educating the community. And it's one of the few hospitals in the country with a farm. Tell us about that. Well, we have a health education center here that we've had for about 50 years. And we train uh, or we teach kids all across the region about health, um, nutrition. And about five years ago, we decided to open a farm. Um, as part of our health education efforts. We have 10,000 kids a year that come uh, visit us here at Lankanol, or at least before COVID. Now it's virtual. So we started the farm as a way to um, help the kids understand where healthy food comes from, where, um, and, and we engage them in planting, tending, and harvesting the food as a part of our health education initiative. And when you start young like that, it's, it's brilliant because it becomes a habit for them to choose right. good foods. Mm -hmm. And then patients seem to uh, benefit too. It seems as though you created or you grew so much food, you said, how can we bring it to the patients? 
Right. I mean, uh, that was an unintended consequence, I guess. We were so successful with the kids and raising the vegetables that we decided to integrate it into our medicine uh, clinic here on the campus. And we were able to provide food to the patients that had uh, a lack of access to uh, healthy uh, options. And so we started taking the food over when they visited the physician in the office and we had the dietitians and educators teach them how to use healthy food and how to use things like spices instead of salt and in and, and an effort to improve their uh, their uh, health status. So what's really great is while they're waiting, it's kind of like Disney World, you're entertained while you wait in line, you don't notice. <laughs> and I'm sure the wait time is short, but the dietitians and, and the staff comes and demonstrates uh, different ways to pre- pre- prepare the produce. And then the, the patients get to taste the, pro- the, the recipe. They bring some of the produce home. And the next time they go to the supermarket, they're going to say, you know what, I'm going to buy squash today, or I'm going to buy some of that eggplant that I love so much at Lankanaw. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, it really is. And uh, we've, we've prepared a whole bunch of recipes to teach people how to cook some of these things. And um, we basically have learned what are the patient's favorites. So uh, if they like a certain kind of lettuce or bean or whatever, you know, we can basically help them and let them go, quote, shopping uh, mm-hmm. while they're at the doctor. And you've, I know it's more, it's more than 13,000 pounds of produce. And, and during COVID, you were delivering it to over 200 people who have diabetes, heart disease. They're limited because of physical or um, financial or even elderly. So that in itself was magnificent. So it's year round now, right? When it gets cold, you have a greenhouse. Yeah, we have a greenhouse. And so we move indoors about this time of year until April. And then we'll move back outdoors uh, and plant a different uh different crops but um we did during COVID have to change you know to a a different method of distributing the food because people couldn't come in and we weren't really able to send the staff into the doctor's office and so uh, we worked with a couple of local organizations like MANA to uh, actually identify the patients with food insecurity and and then deliver it to them weekly And what's also really great about this is you're trying to improve the health of those with chronic conditions, diabetes, hypertension, and prevent the start of those conditions in other patients. So, and you can collect data and see if you have better health health outcomes because you're helping people make better choices. So when did the farms first open, Phil? Well, we opened it in uh, Earth Day of 2015, and so we've had it for six years, um, and it's been incredibly successful. As I said, we have kids from all over the region that come to the farm, uh, that learn about farming, they learn about healthy options, uh, they learn that food doesn't come in a brown bag or a plastic wrapper, <laughs> that it comes out of the ground. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, and I think it's wonderful that you keep Dr. Deaver's name, it's the Deaver Wellness Farm. Dr. John Deaver was the chief of surgery at Lancaster from 1896 to 1911, Professor surgery at Penn, brilliant man, great skill, called to the White House to treat President Woodrow Wilson and later Calvin Coolidge, and what better person than Phil Robinson to carry on the traditions and make stellar Lankanaw even better. So I thank you for joining us. Any parting words, Phil? No, thank you, Marianne, very much. Um, and speaking of the White House, back in 2016, I, w- I was invited to the White House, and we were recognized by Michelle Obama for what we've done here with the farm. It's outstanding, and I hope other people listening and other hospitals follow in your footsteps because you really are a true Lankanaw leader. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you, Marianne. 
Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. And welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. Today our discussion is on pancreas and kidney transplants as therapy in some patients with diabetes. 1969, man walked on the moon. That same year marked the first successful human heart transplant. But a few years prior, 1966, the first pancreas and kidney were transplanted into a diabetic patient on dialysis at the University of Minnesota. Since then, more than 50,000 diabetic patients have received transplants in over 200 centers around the world. Joining us this morning is Dr. Ty Dunn with an international reputation. She's a professor of surgery at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, the surgical director of kidney and pancreas transplantation with multiple publications to her credit. She trained at the University of Minnesota, the institute with the longest history of successful pancreas transplants. Welcome, Ty. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Ty, we've been in a series of diabetes uh, lectures for the past three weeks, I guess, discussions. And we know that pancreas makes insulin, and our listeners have learned that type 1 diabetes patients have no insulin. Type 2, there's decreased insulin, and it might not work so well. So when we talk about transplanting a pancreas, what are the indications? In what situations would you say, gee, this would be helpful for you with your, uh, you know, we talk about precision medicine, and each case is different. How do you decide when it's necessary, and what what patients, I guess? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, the majority of pancreas transplants that are being done uh, in the current era are in patients that also have kidney failure. And that might be in the situation where the kidney and the pancreas are transplanted at the same time from a deceased donor, or it could be someone that underwent a kidney transplant, potentially from a living donor, who has already taken on the obligation of chronic immunosuppression and still struggles with their diabetes. And then they go for what's called a pancreas after kidney. That makes up about 95% of all pancreas transplants done these days. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? I, I, I guess because for a while, kidney transplants were, done, were being done in somebody. I got gotcha. you. Um, so the goals of transplanting. So for a listener saying, what's the goal? What is the outcome? How do you measure whether the pancreas transplant is successful? Yeah. Our goal with a pancreas transplant is to render the patient insulin independent. And that is almost always achieved as long as there isn't what's called an early technical failure. Uh, The transplant of the pancreas is a pretty complicated organ, and technical failure rates have gone down over time, but it's still about 8% in the first three months. Things can clot, things can bleed, surgical things can happen. But honestly, when people get through those first three months, they tend to have the same success rate at the one-year mark. So if you get through the early time and things go well, you're really set for long-term success for insulin independence, as long as, you know, people follow their medications and monitor things. And how fortunate that you were able to train at University of Minnesota where the timeline is longest and the experience is so rich. Um, and you've had so many cases that you were able to review in your, in your training. Um, quality of life for a patient with diabetes. For people who don't have diabetes, I really don't think, I mean, I can't even fathom all the things. We have it in our family, and I've watched one of our relatives with type 1 really, really suffer. But it's that frequent blood sugar monitoring, the insulin therapy, the ups and downs, and the potential uh, dialysis time. 
So all of those things are important too. So you want the person to be insulin independent or free of using insulin. So it really does erase their diabetes. Maybe not the complications they may have already um, encountered, but it's, it's incredible that we're able to do this. It seems as though when I was reading the history of it, um, that as we were learning more about technique and, and better immunosuppressive meds with fewer side effects, that it peaked in about 2004, mm-hmm. and then it started to drop. Why do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think there was kind of a watershed in the U.S. in 2004. There was a, an important publication um, that came out that um, said that pancreas after kidney transplant um, was associated with increased mortality. And of course, anytime you do a surgery, you know, there's upfront risk, of course. Um, but there were some flaws in that analysis, and um, that was then, um, uh, the analysis was redone based on more granular data from the International Pancreas and Transplant uh, Registry. And that's a worldwide database as well. And so they were able to do the proper analysis and show that there really is not that difference. But, you know, to, to take that information at that point in time, a lot of endocrinologists kind of said, well, maybe this immunosuppression and all this risk is not worth it. And of course, at the same time, there was emerging technology with, you know, pumps, sensors, closed loop, you know, the bionic pancreas, and kind of all these things together have been an important thing that has reduced some of the indication for pancreas transplant. And like I said, there used to be a lot more um, pancreas transplants alone done, those are people that don't have kidney failure, and now that's only about 5% because of some of this. The other thing is that we've now had um, several decades of decent diabetes care. And if you think back to the 60s and 70s and 80s, we were seeing patients presenting in the 90s with 30 years of terrible diabetes control. You know, not good insulin uh, treatment, not good monitoring, uh, lots of advanced complications. Nowadays, patients are often pretty well preserved even into the upper ages and so they may actually age out of being an appropriate candidate for a pancreas transplant because they've taken such good care of themselves. Yes and it's such a wonderful thing and I was reading that it's because of the DCCT or the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial because I remember when we were students and on there were people would check their sugar once or twice a day but this says you check it maybe four or five times a day with closer control. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that trial was a really large national study that looked at patients that were um, being managed with what would be considered state-of-the-art, very tight, optimal diabetes control, um, and comparing that group and their complication rates. Um, And so given the understanding of those complication rates, both from microvascular um, complications such as eye issues, nerve issues, things like this, kidney issues, cardiovascular risk, we're able to kind of understand what optimal insulin management can do. And the really interesting thing is that as patients have diabetes for longer periods of time, um, they get more brittle, which means that um, they don't tolerate maintaining a perfect A1C anymore. And in fact, that puts them in a, in a risk category where they may have uh, more episodes of severe hypoglycemia. And those can be very problematic and lead to loss of independence. You, you might crash your car, you might lose your license, you might have progression of your eye disease, and it really impacts a lot of aspects of an individual's life. And that's why I think it's really unfair when people say, oh, it's a lifestyle operation. You know, because diabetes lifestyle is not just take your meds, you'll be fine. It's, it's a lot of impact on your health. And anxiety and depression are really common in, pancre- in chronically diabetic patients because of how they have to live their life to stay alive. 
And I think that's the message for listeners who are not diabetic, that you said it so well. It's all those layers of adjusting your lifestyle, work, and checking your sugars. And as you say, once it's your system has been ravaged, I guess, and and not everybody who follows the rules, some have bad luck and, and don't have good outcomes as well. So there are no guarantees. So how do you decide to, well, I guess if they come to you, um, it's already been recommended, but you still would say, here's a person who's ideal for the pancreas transplant, because it's quite a process. Uh, whereas, you know, we're going to wait a little bit. How do you decide in whom it's a good idea? You know, your point about um, kind of already being recommended is really interesting because you would think that, but um, because the majority of patients have renal failure, they're usually getting referred to the transplant center for consideration of a kidney transplant. They may have never heard of a pancreas transplant, and their nephrologist, who is a kidney expert, may not really be tuned into the current outcomes and, and why someone really needs to do a bigger operation or whatever. Uh, and then the endocrinologist, like I said, you know, often... Um, you know, aren't the ones that are referring the patient because they're, you know, advancing all their technology and doing all this. But sometimes then we find very often it's the patients that refer themselves because mm. they're the ones that understand their personal impact of diabetes. And, um, you know, only they can decide what risk they're willing to take. So we, we really think that um, the consultation for transplant is a time where I spend about half the time trying to understand the person's um, medical history and surgical history so I can kind of assess, you know, their ability to be successful with, you know, a significant operation in aftercare. And, and the transplant is a trade. It's not a cure for diabetes, right? So once a person's diabetic, they're going to be diabetic under, under their treatment for the rest of their life, just like if they have chronic kidney disease. There's going to be times in their life when they have a functioning kidney transplant and times when they have to go back on dialysis or you have a functioning pancreas transplant and maybe later along the line you end up going back on some insulin. So, you know, this is an opportunity to live your life and to be free of this burden and progression of underlying disease, which I, you know, think has been well shown now to be um, life um it's it's a survival advantage. Clearly. Sure, altering in a good sense. Yeah. It's so, not just a quality of life operation. So if uh, a nephrologist or a kidney specialist says, you know, to the patient, I would like you to see the transplant doctor about a kidney, and you say, well, you know what? Maybe we'll consider a pancreas because better glucose control will protect the kidney you're about to receive. How do you decide to bring that conversation in? Yeah, so we recognize that there's a lack of information out there. And so our protocol at Penn and some of the other leading pancreas centers is we identify patients that are being referred who have insulin-dependent diabetes and are within what we would consider a reasonable age criteria. And again, it's not just age, it's you know overall health and physiology. Um, you know, we would refer those patients and set them up for a consultation to consider kidney and pancreas so that we can do that intake and understand their health. And then the second half of my consultation is basically going over what are the risks, what are the benefits, what's it like to go through this? So the patient has all that information at their disposal, and then they go and decide what they would like to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then what if a patient says, you know what, my family member or friend, or I have somebody who's going to donate their kidney, so they have a live donor for the kidney, um, but you're going to do a cadaver pancreas. How would you lead into a discussion about that? Yeah. So we, we see patients with really different timelines. For example, on one extreme, you may find someone that's been on dialysis for four years and never heard about pancreas transplant, and maybe they were not so keen on the concept of transplant or got referred late by the referring doctor. And so they show up with all this qualifying time and they basically, the minute they're listed for a transplant, they would be at the top of the list because the wait times for a combined transplant 
um, is much shorter than for a kidney alone transplant, which in this area for blood type O and B is around eight to 10 years at this point. Um, wow. We know that diabetics don't do well, insulin dependent diabetics, especially type ones, don't do well for a very long time. And in fact, survival at 10 years is only about 25%. So having the combination of insulin dependent diabetes and dialysis is much worse prognostically for survival than many cancers these days. That makes sense. And, and we talked last week about the cancers uh, whose risks are much higher because of diabetes. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Ty Dunn, transplant surgeon from Penn, to talk about pancreas and kidney transplants. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, and your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And welcome back to your radio doctor. So fortunate to have our guest, Dr. Ty Dunn from the University of Penn. Ty, we were talking about different scenarios for transplanting organs in patients with diabetes. Some are pancreas after they've had a kidney transplant at an earlier time. Some are pancreas and kidney. In a patient that sees you and says, yes, I want to do both pancreas and kidney, let's say they have a live donor uh, available for the kidney and the pancreas, of course, is cadaver. How do you make that decision or what would you advise somebody? Yeah, that's, uh, that's something that we encounter all the time in the clinic, and it's so personalized based on what opportunities the patients may or may not have. A lot of times when we're seeing people early in their consultation, early in their transplant journey, they, they think they may have donors, but it may turn out that their donors are not able to donate medically or whatever. And so, you know, that really changes the whole perspective, and that way if they have the education up front, they can kind of walk that walk. The earlier we see them and get them listed, even if they're not sure about pancreas transplant, they actually gain waiting time. So even if they go forward with a living donor kidney, um, they could at some point in the future decide they wanted to kind of flip the switch and be active on the waiting list. They would have banked a lot of time and they go straight to the top of the list. You know, Perfect. So that's, that's really the thing. And the other thing is that um, sometimes a living donor might be very young and we worry a lot about our donors and in general for donor safety. You know, we've got some data out to 40 years, but not as much as we do at 10 to 20. And we're very concerned that, you know, we don't really know what a person's life is going to unfold in terms of their health risks. So even though they might be a perfect donor at age 23, it may be that donation isn't the right thing for them at that time, just from a donor risk perspective. So sometimes it's nice to say, well, if you have a favorable blood type and you get referred early enough, you can make enough waiting time to actually get a combined transplant before you have to start dialysis. That would spare your donor from donating, and that donor could be there for you, you know, 15 years down the road if you, in fact, needed a retransplant of a kidney. Plus, I guess the recipient, the patient with the diabetes, would be getting an organ from Mary Smith and John Jones, so they're getting exposed to antibodies or the proteins that you might reject from two different sources. Mm -hmm. So I think pancreas transplant from cadaver to start, anyway, not for me to say, but I think what I've tried to express to my listeners from day one that this show began, medicine is not meant to be automated. It's not one size fits all. It, the nuances are what make for successful outcomes. Am I right? And that's what, what you have to offer more than so many people. Absolutely. So let's say a, a patient decides to go through with a transplant. What do they go through? I'm sure a big vetting process and psychological testing too, wouldn't they have that? 
Um, we do a 360 evaluation, if you will. So um, they meet many different members of the team. They would meet a, a, a kidney specialist, a nephrologist. They would meet a surgeon. Uh, they would meet a social worker, a financial counselor. Mm. Uh, they have a personal transplant coordinator that kind of synthesizes all the testing and keeps mm -hmm. them up to date on what's going on. Um, and in some cases, we do um, recommend consultations. Um, at Penn, we have all of our potential pancreas candidates referred to Penn Endocrinology because they specialize in pancreas transplant follow-up. And then they would be part of that patient's journey going forward as well, um, just because of the specific transplant aspects of the endocrinology, even though they may have a home endocrinologist as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure, too, depending on their age, you want to make sure they've been screened, say, for cancers. How Are they up to date with mammogram and colonoscopy and all those things? Because if there's a quiet colon cancer sitting in there, you need to know before they're on immunosuppressives that turn their immune system down and allow these other things to blossom. Am I right? Even Absolutely. skin cancers? Mm -hmm. That's true for any type of transplant. We definitely don't want to harm the patient by exposing them to accelerated risk for an underlying problem. And the same thing goes for um, untreated or unknown infections. So we screen for, you know, who knows if they have hepatitis C and they might just, you know, have it. And we need to make sure we're not putting them at risk by, you know, the immunosuppression. Mm -hmm. yeah. So if a patient says, I'd like to do this, they know they have to go through the steps of being checked and make sure they're in, in great condition. Uh, you mentioned earlier that diabetes is definitely a cause for depression and anxiety for a patient and their family. Mm -hmm. And I know you go to great lengths to consider the family, the other family members as well. Um, is there any kind of a psychology visit or I guess that's more when there's a, a, a live donor involved because you you would interview that person as well but what what aspects of that do you consider yeah well um you know the donor team um handles everything regarding the donor just from a privacy perspective and the well-being of the donor um donors don't necessarily need to see a psychologist unless they're donating altruistically that would mean to like anyone on a list anywhere they just want to do the right thing just to make sure they're not completely out of two standard deviations of normal. Um, but in terms of, you know, patients with uh, diabetes or kidney transplant, um, many times when patients have chronic illnesses, they, they are anxious and they are depressed about their situation and their medical, you know, change in their health and vitality. Mm -hmm. And so some patients can really develop problems with panic attacks and things like that. So we offer transplant psychiatry services uh, for patients that are um, struggling with some of these things. And it's not so much to figure out if they're psychologically stable, it's really to give them the tools to navigate this new right. stress. To because prepare. going through a pancreas transplant and their recovery, even a kidney transplant, is a new stress on top of their chronic stress. So really it's, a, it's to develop an additional tool, tool set and to introduce them to the team that will be there to support them for their journey. Mm -hmm. So can you describe the surgery itself in, in basic terms for us? Yeah. So a kidney transplant alone uh, is an operation where we make an incision kind of um, in the lower abdomen, just inside the hip bone, and the kidney is placed there connected to the blood vessels and to the bladder. Um, for the pancreas transplant, the incision is up and down in the middle because we have to connect the pancreas transplant to the intestines and the kidney transplant would usually go on one side or the other. Uh, and so it's a bigger operation and it takes a longer time to kind of, you know, be able to drink and eat and support your hydration just because of the involvement with the intestines. Mm -hmm. So the average length of stay for a kidney transplant alone is three to five days. For people that have insulin dependent diabetes, 
because of the change in metabolism, we have to completely reinvent their regimen for insulin mm. and blood pressure medicines. And so those patients typically are more on the four or five day uh, kind of a thing. Which is still very Star Wars and that's pretty impressive that it's only that long. I would think it would be longer. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's really come a long ways. For pancreas and kidney transplant together, um, you know, six days minimum. Um, wow. If things go well on average, we talk about nine days. It really just depends wow. on the intestine and all of that. A lot of diabetics have underlying, you know, motility disorders and things like that. So that the, the sure. degree to which their bodies have been impacted by the diabetes can impact their ability to have a normal recovery. Yeah, and which led me, well, I was thinking I'd ask you, um, once the pancreas and kidney take hold and, and we're on a new track, sugar levels are easy to control. It may not reverse some of the secondary complications that are already in place, but one of the bonuses is triglycerides, LDL, the bad cholesterol fall, HDL, the good cholesterol rises. What other, just quickly, what other kind of, um, or do you see a reversal in, in any respect to some of the eye changes you know, that may have been yeah. there of uh, neuro neurologic changes. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, the, the abrupt normalization of um, blood sugar is an amazing thing. And it, it triggers a lot of changes uh, in our bodies and how our bodies manage blood pressure and, you know, the, um, the risk of eye diseases, retinal hemorrhages and things like that. So, you know, for example, I, I progression of eye disease, um, typically stabilizes about six months after transplant. Uh, so oftentimes it's quite protective in terms of vision. Wow. Yeah, so neuropathy takes a long time to develop. And if you keep your pancreas for a long time, in, in selected cases, I've seen it reverse. Um, and wow. That's, that's exciting, but I think that it's very important for patients to understand that that is not the goal of the operation. Right. We can't guarantee that that's going to be that person's individual experience. But I think really freedom from insulin, people are mostly off insulin right away after the transplant. Um, and of course, you know, we do, you know, sometimes do a little bit of insulin here or there just to keep blood sugars normal. And that's mostly to prevent infection in the early time of healing. Mm -hmm. um, so complete freedom from the fear of low blood sugar is something that happens pretty much once they're yeah. awake from surgery yeah and and the diabetic patient keeps his or her own pancreas and nowadays you're more likely to connect the new pancreas to bowel to let it drain out not yeah. bladder which had complications uh, that yeah. you want to avoid so i'm sure you get asked a lot of questions about the medications the anti-rejection meds immunosuppressives tell us about that in our final two minutes yeah um immunosuppression is um is has come a long ways. Um, we use more specific drugs, uh, drugs that don't uh, affect your whole bone marrow. So, for example, um, there's a decreased risk of some aspects of older immunosuppression. About 30% of programs are actually steroid sparing for pancreas. And um, the, the recent increases um, in understanding how to monitor for rejection and also to decrease the pill burden, we now have once daily uh, for certain agents that we can do. And that's, that's great for patients because, you know, transplant is really a trade of, of the daily care of the diabetes state versus the daily care of the organ. So it really, you, people need to think about it as a trade. They're taking on some risks of immunosuppression medically for sure, um, but those risks pale compared to the risks of diabetes. But I think it's good also that you just mentioned that steroids aren't used as much as they used to be. Yeah. For our listeners, avascular necrosis means you can... Uh, your hip can disintegrate, right? If the blood flow to your hip, yeah. and there are all kinds of uh, steroid side effects. 
we'll talk about a few minutes um, in our last segment about rejection and detection. Let's we have about thirty seconds left. How often do you see complications acutely and then down the road? Yeah. So um, rejection is something that when it happens, it typically happens in the first six months uh, because that's when your body is kind of getting used to things. And if people are stable on their medications and doing the proper, you know, self-care at home and, you know, that kind of thing, um, they're going to keep those organs a long time. Actually, the kidney transplant as part of a simultaneous kidney pancreas comes from a really excellent quality donor and it rivals the outcomes long term from living donor kidney transplants. So I always ask patients to figure out where they put their value. I tell them that the kidney is their life-saving organ, but then after that, if diabetes is really their primary issue, they should maybe consider the simultaneous because being able to follow the kidney and the pancreas from the same donor provides us with a little more information about the early diagnosis of rejection so that if it does happen, we can easily take care of it. It's incredible, and you explained this so well. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back for our final segment with Dr. Ty Dunn. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1-888-RECOVERY. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. And we have another segment with the glorious information we're learning from Dr. Ty Dunn. Ty when people do have a transplant, let's talk about rejection, um, how you detect it, and how often it happens. And you were saying if somebody really follows your instructions, they're, they're in a pretty good place, yes? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's all about compliance and self-care and, and really investing in the long-term success of your transplant. So um, rejection happens um, between, between 10 and 20% of the time. And while that might seem high, I think it's important to understand that a lot of rejection episodes that happen later after transplant are because of patient non-adherence, hmm. okay? So um, we follow the blood levels of um, some enzymes that the pancreas secretes called lipase. And for the kidney, we follow creatinine. So these are things that we can use in a blood test. And actually, we're participating in some studies right now that we're able to test the blood for a, a fraction of cell-free DNA that's not from your own body. So we're able to now do um, like what we call a liquid biopsy. Without a lab test that can be certain what is rejection or not, we're stuck with you know, doing a biopsy of the organ and looking under the microscope to understand if there's actually rejection going on. I think it's important to emphasize that rejection is really like a sickness of the, the, the transplant where your body's lymphocytes, um, you know, your, your T cells and your B cells may be secreting antibodies. And, and basically all of this is then, um, your body's noticing that this is foreign tissue and attacking it. And that's clinically silent until there's damage. And if we can detect it earlier, we can treat it earlier. Early rejection is really not a big deal. We treat it all the time with high success. Mm-hmm. So rejection is not a black or white, okay? Right. It's, it's something you want to avoid, for sure. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, with early monitoring and advancements that we're having right now, I think really um, these, these rates are going to go down and the consequences of rejection will go down. And so if somebody does have an acute episode of rejection, you bring them back into the hospital, you give them intensive therapy and 
you're you're hopeful that that's a pretty quick fix. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm just trying to yep. give people hope here that it happens. Yep. We're awake. We're alert. And you mentioned a um, cell-free DNA. For our listeners, it's almost uh, artificial intelligence that we're able to pick up these little teeny fragments of DNA not inside a cell that are giving us great new information about early detection of uh, rejection and some cancers. So that's another show we'll have to yeah. bring you back. So if a person is starting to reject you have to biopsy the pancreas or the kidney? How do you do that? I would think if it's just under the the uh, skin, basically, tucked into the belly, it's a little easier to get tissue samples, yes? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the rejection is kind of like putting a little IV, a little needle, into mm-hmm. the skin, into the organ. And remember, the organs don't have nerves, right? So you can numb up the skin, do a, do a biopsy, and um, get the information that you need. Now, of course, there's risks with the biopsy, bleeding and things like this. So, you know, that's why a non-invasive way of diagnosing rejection would really be the optimal thing. Um, but, you know, we, we have to do biopsies to determine sometimes why there's dysfunction. It may not be rejection, but then we learn why there's dysfunction and we can optimize the situation. Right. And having learned how to do laparoscopy by myself uh, years ago, it's short of surgery. We can put a little probe in there and get it uh, the tissue sample. So there, there's so much technology. And if a person wants to reach you, how would they make an appointment to see you, Ty? Um, well, um, we have a wonderful website um, for the Penn Transplant Institute. Uh, we have a Facebook page and uh, we're on Twitter. So I think it's easy to reach out and connect. And there's a lot of information on those sites where you can find out how to get referred for a transplant call uh, and start that process. Or if you have a living donor that's interested in donating on your behalf, they also can go to the website and get plugged in with their, their team. Beautiful. Dr. Ty Dunn from the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, is very grateful to have you because it is a gift to have you and your experience and knowledge. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And now for your real champion. I call this segment a lily for the world. When Matt and Megan Walker named their first child Lily, little did they know that she would grow to embody the very meaning of the word. Lily is the flower that has long been associated with love, devotion, purity, and transformation or rebirth. Here is her story. Since the age of six, Lily Walker has loved to run through middle school and Haverford High School, a decorated athlete. But on March 16, 2019, she was crushed to learn that her recent headaches and blurry vision were caused by a brain tumor. Within hours of the emergency room visit, a biopsy revealed cancer. The location made complete removal too risky. From the start, 14-year-old Lily decided she'd choose one of two paths, either spend her time and energy complaining or be an example to other people who also face hardship. She chose to fight and fight hard. Team Lily includes family, friends, and people she doesn't even know. The enemy, her brain tumor. The weapon, prayer. Lily cherishes her life and wants to heal for so many reasons, but especially to show that prayer works. This prayer warrior focuses on asking Father Bill Atkinson to intercede for her and ask the Lord for healing. Father Bill was born in 1946 and grew up with Lily's grandfather. In his first year of study in seminary, a sledding accident rendered him quadriplegic. He wrote to Pope Paul VI and requested permission to continue. Father Bill believed he was called to a special vocation. By accepting his own cross as Christ did, he became the only quadriplegic man to ever be ordained in the history of the Catholic Church. He died a few years ago. 
Working in his weakness was a tremendous example to those who lacked faith or hope because they were also suffering. Father Bill spent 30 years teaching from a wheelchair at Monsignor Bonner High School and lived to be 60 years old. He was a miracle. Lily sees a parallel in their journeys. Her birthday is November 15, tomorrow, 11.15. And every day at 11.15 a.m. and p.m., she says a prayer to Father Bill asking for his help. Her devotion has sparked a global movement. In frequent Zoom meetings, hundreds of people pray with Lily and her family. Each May, a 24-hour Lily run in her neighborhood, everyone wearing green t-shirts. For months, houses and storefronts in Havertown have been shining in green lights, the color of springtime and hope, supporting Lily and two other students fighting cancer. Local school children support Team Lily with green t-shirt days and dance-a-thons. Long before her diagnosis, her mom says Lily was always wise and mature. Others would say, I want my child to be just like Lily, a model of goodness and kindness. She sticks up for kids who were bullied even through her teens, never hesitated to wear her t-shirts with a positive message like, be kind. And when Lily's at the hospital for treatment, she always checks with the other kids. Hi, love your dress. Have a good appointment. At a recent visit, I had a warm welcome from Lily and her entire dear family, including kisses from Hope, her little doggie. It's clear where Lily draws her strength. Her mom has taught Lily that we shouldn't always use prayer for requests. Would you ask a friend to borrow her sweater, share her lunch, and lend you money? No. Balance with giving. Lily prays for a healing, but also prays for Father Bill to be named a saint. Megan also schedules mom time with each of her other two daughters and her son so they don't feel like Lily gets all the attention. When I mentioned the story of last week's real champion, Captain Chucky, and his projects, Matt instantly said, can we help? Sign us up. Tomorrow is November 15. This remarkable young woman will be 17 years old. Even if you're not a person of faith, you'll agree that this is a powerful profile and courage. A Lily for the world. We salute you, Lily Walker, your parents, Matt and Megan, sisters, Annie and Elizabeth, and brother Henry, your real champions. Visit her website, alilyfortheworld.com. Thanks to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and support from Recovery Centers of America and Rothman Orthopedics. Thank you for joining us each Sunday. Listen again on newradiodoctor.com. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't delay. Get your flu shot. This is the month we're reminded to be thankful. Surprise someone and do a good deed. Today is November 14. Pour a glass of orange juice and add a dash of champagne as we toast Sid Mark. Today, Sid Mark celebrates 65 years as host of The Sounds of Sinatra. As Frank Sinatra speaks to Sid at the close of every Sunday show, I love you too, Sidney. Congratulations to our dear friend Sid Mark. We all love you too. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a wonderful and safe week. Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.